the fall of my senior year when I was asked to speak in chapel at our college. And it was on that particular fall day when I decided to tell the entire student body that I wasn't sure if I believed in God anymore. This was not the chapel talk that those who had asked me expected me to give. You see, four years earlier, I had entered into college in a place that was very, very rare. I knew what my major was going to be. I knew that I was going to be a Bible major with a preaching minor. And so for the next four years, I studied and I read and I wrote papers and every internship I did aimed at me leaving college as a trained minister. But then some things happened the the second half of the time that I was in college that began to to raise some doubts and some questions and some uncertainties that culminated in me declaring on that particular fall day in chapel that I wasn't sure if I had faith anymore. I was not asked to speak in chapel again until I graduated. Go figure. But on that day, there was a text that guided the reflections that I gave, which is the text that I intentionally chose this morning in Matthew chapter 9. Because whether I knew it or not at the time, that particular text became kind of an anchor for me through that season of doubt and darkness. Because it was this text in particular that that opened up for me a new dimension of discipleship that I had never before considered. And that was the dimension of doubt. Our our passage this morning in Matthew chapter 9 comes in this series of snapshots of Jesus' ministry. Jesus is healing people. Jesus is calling disciples. Jesus is calming storms. Jesus is moving from town to town. And as he's going on from one town to another, there are these two blind men that call out to him. Have mercy on us, son of David. Have mercy on us, son of David. And Jesus does two surprising things from my perspective. Number one, he goes indoors. He takes this very public moment and he moves it to a very private moment. And the second thing he does is he asks them a question. Do you believe that I am able to? to do this? Do you believe that I am able to do this? And this one sentence was kind of an aha moment for me over 15 years ago. Because it was in this moment that I realized that by asking these two men this question, Jesus was creating space for them to doubt. I realized that by Jesus asking them a question about their belief, he was creating the opportunity for disbelief. That by asking the question, Jesus was creating this space for them to ponder and question and consider if they really believed or not. Because that's how questions work, right? Questions when asked to us, kind of create just a little bit of space, a little bit of ground for us to stand on where we're left to ask ourselves the question and consider more deeply what we really think, what we really believe. That's how questions work. 
questions create room for doubt. And Jesus here is creating some space for these men to doubt. Jesus is introducing them to an essential dimension of discipleship, and that is the dimension of doubt. Doubt is a normal, healthy, good experience of discipleship. Doubt is normal. Doubt is okay. And just to make sure that we are on the same page this morning, I want to give a definition, kind of a working definition to make sure that we're all tracking in the same direction. And my definition of doubt is simply this. Doubt is the act of questioning. Doubting, doubt is the act of questioning. In other words, whenever we ask a question, we are making a little space for ourselves to consider more deeply. We're creating a little bit of space for us to have the potential for doubt. And if there's one thing we learned from Matthew 9, and if there's one thing that we should learn through this excellent series that Kevin is leading us through, that is, Jesus asks a lot of questions. Jesus creates a lot of spaces for people to doubt throughout the Gospels. And whether we realize it or not, by asking these questions, Jesus is tapping into a much deeper well of faith. And he's also introducing his disciples to this bigger theme of Scripture that goes all the way back to the Old Testament. And here's what I mean by that. One of the most quoted books of Jesus from the Old Testament is the book of Psalms. Psalms is that typically in the middle of your Bible book that's 120 songs, poems, and prayers that paint the range of emotions in the spiritual life. And this is the book that Jesus quotes most in the New Testament, one of the ones he quotes most in the whole New Testament. The book of Psalms is kind of like this soundtrack that was playing in the mind and heart of Jesus. He knew these songs so well. It's like when you have a favorite band or a favorite artist and you listen to their albums over and over and over again and you know the entire collection that they've produced. When you have a a band or an artist that's deeply ingrained in your heart and you know all of their lyrics to all of their songs, you can just pluck different lyrics from their vast collection of songs because you know it so well. It's formed this deep groove in you. And the book of Psalms was that soundtrack for Jesus. That these songs and prayers and poems had formed this groove in his heart and in his mind so he could quote it so easily, so naturally. The book of Psalms was the great songs of the church before we had the great songs of the church. This is what Jesus knew. And one of the things that will be really clear about the Psalms if you ever read through them, and I encourage that you do, is that there's a lot of them that are raw and gritty and filled with questions. One of the most helpful treatments of the Psalms that that I've come across in recent years is from an author who, who describes these three big categories of types of Psalms that reflect different seasons of faith that we experience. And the first type of Psalm, or the first season of faith, is what he calls 
a season of orientation. These are psalms that when you read them, they're filled with joy and gladness and praise. They reflect a season in a person's life where they are experiencing deep blessing. All is right with the world. And we know this season, right? I mean, we know this season when you hold a new baby in your arms and all is right with the world. You, you know this season of faith when you stand at the edge of the ocean and you look out for miles while the waves lap over your feet and all is right with the world. You know it in those quiet early mornings where you can't hear a sound in your house except for the faint chirp of birds around you. But we also know that this isn't the only season of faith that people experience. There's also a, a season of disorientation. There are these seasons when things are not going well. And these kinds of psalms that we sometimes read are psalms that are raw and gritty, filled with anger and rage and grief. These reflect a person in a season of barrenness when all is not right with the world. And we know this season too, right? Because we know what it's like to get the diagnosis that we didn't expect. We know what it's like to feel hurt and betrayed. We know what it's like to experience a national tragedy. And these different moments send us often into a season of disorientation, of grief, of hurt, of darkness, of depression. And those are difficult seasons and sometimes they can last a very long time but there's also a third season of faith a third a third type of psalm and that is a season of reorientation a, a season of reorientation are songs that reflect joy and gladness and praise but they're different than the first type because they're deeper and different because these songs, this season, reflects that person who has been through the valley of the shadow of death, but they've come out on the other side. It's the difference between a 10-year-old saying God is faithful and a 70-year-old saying God is faithful. Both of them are true, but there's a texture and a depth when we know that a person has been through some things and they still say God is worthy of praise. And so when Jesus goes along and he ministers, these songs and these different seasons are these worn grooves in his heart and his mind. And so he wasn't afraid to ask some questions. Because he knew that by asking questions and, and creating a little bit of doubt, creating a little bit of disorientation, that ultimately where that would head is to a stronger, different, deeper kind of faith. And, and so the church, you and me, us, we're called to be the kind of community that makes space for people to experience these seasons of disorientation, to experience these seasons of doubt. But my fear, my concern is that sometimes our communities of faith are the last place people want to go with their doubts. About seven years ago, there was a book written called You Lost Me. Why young people are leaving the church and how they're rethinking faith. 
And what the author addressed in this book is a question that we have often wrestled with, that some of you have often wrestled with, and that is, why do people who are young often leave church? Why do they leave Christian faith at ages 18 to 29? Why are there so many of them flooding out of our church doors? We've sometimes wrung our hands asking this question. Some of us know this question deeply. And so the author of this book, David Kinneman and the Barna Group, decided to poll and research and survey 18 to 29-year-olds who had left the Christian faith, who grew up in the faith, but then they left Christian faith altogether. And in the book, they give six big reasons why, and one of the reasons why they discovered boils down to one word, doubtless. In other words, many of the young Christians that they interviewed who were no longer considering themselves Christians, left the church, they left the faith because in their experience with church, they did not believe it was a safe place where they could go with their doubts. They did not believe it was a safe place they could go with their questions, and so they went other places. Now, this was a survey done several years ago, so it's a bit dated, but I would argue and contend that this is still a concern that churches need to be thoughtful about. Still a concern that we should address. And the reason why I think it's still a concern for the church is because of a Facebook post that a friend of mine put up a few weeks ago that I want you to to listen to. He said this. He said, over the last few years, I have felt a pull towards people with lots of doubts regarding Christianity. I can simultaneously admire the faith I grew up in and recognize it doesn't deal with doubt in a healthy way. I've had more healthy conversations with people holding big doubts who don't seem to have a safe place to express those doubts. It's discouraging that we are so bad at doubt. But it's also encouraging... Because those friends who are doubting have great insight. Often their observations are spot on. If you're one of those with big doubts, I want to encourage you. Christianity is a faith of mystery and questions. Don't let those people convince you otherwise. Plenty of reasons exist to doubt the Christian religion and Christian themselves. You have loads to contribute to the conversation. And if you're a doubter and want a a place to express those freely and safely, personally message me. No catch-22. I don't want to fix anything. We just need better circles in which to share. The reason why I read you that post is for two reasons. One, I want to applaud my friend for trying to be a safe place for Christians, for people who are experiencing doubt. And I, I want to offer that same invitation of my friend to this community of faith as well that if you're one of those people who find yourself in a place with deep questions and doubts, that myself and several other leaders here are more than happy to talk and listen and learn from you. But the second reason I read this quote, this post, is because I think it reflects a reality that we need to be honest about. And that is, if people, young and old, because I don't think this is just an 18 to 29-year-old issue, but anyone who's experiencing doubts and they don't feel like the church can be a place where they can express those doubts, they will go other places. They will find other spaces and other people who will listen to their questions and their doubts 
in a safe place. And so my hope is that that our church, us, the, the men and women who follow the Jesus who asked questions all the time would become a people who are okay with questions. That that wouldn't concern us, that that wouldn't bother us or worry us. That when people experience a season of doubt, this would be a safe place. And I intentionally use the word season this morning to be really clear. There is a difference between experiencing a season of doubt and staying in doubt for all seasons. There's a difference between experiencing a season of doubt and staying in doubt for all seasons. I am not proposing this morning that we change our name to who knows Church of Christ. That's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is that we could be a place and we could be a people that when people had those seasons of disorientation, that they would feel like there's a community here who will love and listen to them. And I'm increasingly convinced of that as I read about and listen to people who have experienced seasons of not believing and then have come back to belief or who are still experiencing seasons of not believing. And there's a book I read last year called Finding God in the Waves. Subtitle, How I Lost My Faith and Found It Again Through Science. It's written by a guy named Mike, and in this book, Mike tells the story of his own journey of leaving faith and losing faith and then coming back to faith. And one of the convicting parts of this book is he talks honestly about how he was a deacon at his church, how he was teaching Bible classes, how he was going through the motions, and he didn't believe a bit of it. And so he was at a conference far away, in the midst of this season of disorientation with a group of complete strangers and it was there he decided to finally voice his doubts and voice the fact that he had doubts and questions about faith. And when he did, he was received with warmth and love and understanding and compassion. No one shunned him or shamed him. And as he wrote about that experience, he wrote this reflection that I want us to hear as we close this morning. Mike says this, if you're a Christian who wonders what to do with someone who's in doubt, consider these words carefully. Love and grace speak loudly. The first and best response to someone whose faith is unraveling is a hug. Apologetics aren't helpful, neither are scripture references. The first thing a person needs is to know they're not alone. My path to God was paved with grace by those who received my doubt in love. When I finished my chapel talk nearly 15 years ago, the last line of my talk was this, I think I'm losing my faith, but I also think I'm finding a new one. And in the days and weeks that followed that talk, I was overwhelmed with professors and other students who would send me a note or would pull me aside and give me a pat on the back, letting me know that they were in my corner. And that was a meaningful, powerful, significant moment from that experience. And Matthew 9 is a particularly significant and meaningful text for me because of the way Matthew tells it. What struck me is that it was two blind men that Jesus asked this question to. And I love this moment 
These two men standing in front of Jesus with this question that he has just asked them, holding that question together to consider. And I think that is a brief moment of so often who the church is called to be. This place and this space and this people where we hold our questions together so that no one has to hold their questions alone. And so may we be the kind of church that meets one another with love and grace and in doing so, whether we may realize it or not, we will pave the way back to God. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful that you give us a community of faith. Give us love and support and encouragement as we journey together. Whether we feel oriented or disoriented or reoriented, wherever we find ourselves, but especially for those of us who are just in a season where our feet can't seem to hit the ground or we feel overwhelmed and confused, filled with questions and doubts, pray that your grace would meet us through one another. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have any response to the invitation this morning, you can come forward. We're going to have shepherding couples in the back who will meet with you and pray with you. Whatever your need is this morning, you can respond now while we stand and sing. I am a shepherd.